Would you take your Bibles with me and turn in them to the book of Romans? We are once again returning to our study of verses 9 through 21 of chapter 12, which, as we learned last time, is the second section concerning this necessary doctrine of Christian conduct. Loving God and therefore loving our neighbor. As we begin, would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, once again, we offer this time to you and before you that you would attend to it for our good and for your glory. Allow the truths that are said here this morning to be understood. Take these words, massage them into our hearts that they might become part of us. We might live them. We might be a people after God's own heart. Those who truly want to honor you in every way. And so, Lord, these things we ask because we know that you love us. and We know that you want us to be conformed to the image of your son. And so as we hear your words and as we apply them, we ask that you would accomplish that for us and for the sake of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, when we think about being a Christian, when we examine all of the reasons for which God, through His great mercy and according to His divine grace, has saved us, we would have to come to the conclusion that one of the goals of Christianity is that we would conduct ourselves as we live here and now on this earth prior to going to glory, that we live according to the commandments of God. This is one of the goals of Christianity. We could even say it this way. Christianity is not simply to be relegated to some kind of religious concept that we hear even in the headlines and in the news feeds and in the words of people throughout the world when they talk about Christianity as if it is some kind of religious concept. But rather, Christianity is, by biblical fact, a way of life. A way of life. In other words, the reality and truth of saving faith is to be seen in how we live to be seen in our very lives day to day. And this reality and this truth concerning Christian conduct should not really be a surprise to any of us, at least here at Fellowship Bible Church. Because we have had our spiritual eyes and our spiritual hearts open to what is right here in Romans chapter 12 for us. And in fact, when we think about it, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul has been driving at since chapter 1. The fact that we, who were dead in our sins, have been saved by the mercy and grace of God, so that we, who are called Christians, who are followers of Jesus Christ, would in fact reflect that reality in our very lives in practical ways. So Christian people are 
people who are living out what is biblically true of them if they are truly Christian. It's oxymoronic to think of a Christian who doesn't live out what they are. It is anti-biblical. It is antithetical to who God has what God has saved you from and what God is making you into. To say that you are a Christian because you believe in God or even say that you believe in Jesus and yet you are not being made into the likeness of Jesus Christ is an oxymoron. And it is to say that God doesn't do what God said He would do. So Christians are people who are living out what is biblically true of them. And so when you study through this epistle, this truth of salvation that we've seen from chapter 1, by the time you get to chapter 12, we are now hearing from the Apostle Paul the outworking of that reality. The outworking of who we are. The outworking of what God has accomplished. How we are to live as Christians. And if we have been listening... And I know that you have, because many of you have personally even come to me on your own and said what God has been teaching you through the implications of this very text. The outworking of these principles is opening up for us, since we have been listening, it is opening up for us as individuals areas where we see both victories in our life and deficiencies in our own Christian walk And all of that, all of that is for the purpose of conforming us to the likeness of Jesus Christ in our life. When you woke up this morning, you were more like Christ today than you were like Christ yesterday when you went to bed. God is conforming you through the pressures and through the victories and through the deficiencies that He is opening up and showing us. He is conforming us into the image of His Son. Now, just by way of reminder, we have to keep in mind, we are living our lives each and every day that we wake. We are living our lives. We have to keep in mind who it is that we are. Who it is that we are. Why? Because that is the truth that is going to keep us grounded as to our own giftedness within the church as a Christian and how it is that we are to view others in both the church and in the world. The truth of who we are. That's simply to say that part of the reason that we have problems, part of the reason that sometimes we have strife, both in the church and with others outside the church, is because we have forgotten this very principle. We have not rested or not rehearsed or not owned this very principle about us. You remember that the Apostle Paul had to deal with the Corinthians on this very issue. Remember when we were studying through 1 Corinthians, they had a fractured group of people. They were a church that was full of trouble. And the collective testimony of the church was in disrepair. Why? Because the individual Christians within the church had forgotten this very truth. They had forgotten who they were. 
They, they, they were fighting about, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of this guy, and this, this whole uh, hero worship kind of idea was going on, and some even went to the top pinnacle and said, yeah, well, you're those people. I'm of Christ. I'm the super religious. And so right here in Romans chapter 12, Paul brings it up right out of the gate so that all of us would never forget this truth. We are what we are. Our salvation and our gifting is what it is only because of God's mercy and because of God's grace. That's all we are. All that we have received has been a gift from Him. By now, that may seem so elementary to us. By now that we've read chapter 12, we spent time six weeks in verses 1 and 2. By now, we should have that so ingrained in us that it seems like it's just an elementary principle. Okay, pastor, yeah, move on. But it seems so so significant. It has got to be significant for our living day to day. That principle cannot be just relegated to the back shelf to collect dust with all the other theological books that we have on the shelf that we pick up once every now and then. If we're going to conduct ourselves rightly, we must never forget that because knowing and embracing that truth, knowing and embracing verses 1 and 2 motivates us to live that self-offering kind of life. I urge you by the mercies of God. Is there any other way to be urged? Is there any other way to be motivated as a Christian? Is there any other way for us to understand exactly how we are supposed to respond in every situation to understand that it is because of God's mercy and because of God's grace we are what we are? So that when someone is stepping on my spiritual toes and when someone is irritating me and when someone is getting in under my skin or when the world is going haywire and I think it's going to all fall apart, I need to sit back and realize I am what I am and I are and I'm, and I'm where I am supposed to be because God is who God is. It's according to His mercy. It's by His grace. You see, the self-offering life is the life that continually is giving itself over. Not just in thought, not just as a as this kind of ethereal principle that we go, oh yeah, that's what I'm supposed to be. That there's the truth to that, but that has to move into action. It is a life that continually is in actuality giving himself over to God for God to use as he desires. It's a life that refuses to exalt self. It's a life that refuses to eclipse others for your own glory. It's a life that refuses to fight in order to be seen as the winner at all cost. It's a life that is continually pursuing truth. Well, for us to do that continually then we have to remember that we are nothing without God's action. We are nothing without God. Therefore, what we are and what we do is not ours. It is His. 
Our life is His. Our stuff is His. Our our whole being is His. We are His. And if in His plan, and if in His purposes, it is His will to have us crushed for the sake of others, so that others are exalted, and so that He is glorified, and so that the gospel is seen so clearly through us, and He is ultimately seen as the one whom people must go to, so then let it be. We need to have the words of Jesus Christ as He stood there before Pilate when He was being challenged and accused. And for Him to say, you would have no power over me unless the Father had granted it to you. That ought to be our attitude. That is exactly what a self-serving life is looking like. None of this would be happening if it wasn't not for God allowing it. That's the Christian life. So how then are we going to live that out in practical ways? How are we going to live that out in practicality? How are we going to put that into practice? How is that going to be seen in us? Well, last Lord's Day, we began to look at two overarching principles that must rule in our lives. And we know where they are. They're both right there in verse 9. These are the overarching general principles that Paul lists for us. The first one we looked at last time. Love without hypocrisy. Or let your love be without hypocrisy. That's the idea. No matter which side you look at it from, it's the same thing. We're not to have hypocritical love. And as we were reminded last time, since the Bible commands us to love God with our whole heart, with our whole mind, and with our whole strength, and then to love our neighbor as ourself, those are the two commandments that that encapsulate the whole essence of the law. If that is the case, and if our love for God is seen in our obedience to His commands, for Jesus Christ said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if we say we love God, then the reflection of that love is seen through our obedient life. The reflection of the depth of that love is seen through our obedient life. Not perfection in life, because that won't happen this side of glory. It is direction of life. It is a progression of sanctification in this life. Glorification happens when we are with Christ. It's like driving down to Florida from here. You can't just go south. Sometimes you have to go west. But you're still directionally, fully, principally going south. That's the way it is in the Christian life. We're principally going the direction of greater and greater holiness, even though sometimes we find walls and sinfulness and other blockages. And so if we say we love God, we say that we follow God, then our lives directionally are being characterized by a love for God that is not play-acting. It is a love that is without hypocrisy, an unhypocritical love. So if we, the Christian, are going to conduct ourselves as Christians ought to be conducting ourselves, then we should have a great emphasis on love in our lives, right? 
Love ought to be a characteristic of our lives. This is one of the implications of this first principle, let love be without hypocrisy. The whole of our Christian lives being continually ruled by the kind of loving outlook that characterizes God's outlook for us. We are to love unhypocritically, which is exactly how God loves God isn't play-acting when He loves. He isn't fickle with His love. He isn't love here and no love there, or say I love here, but it's really not love. No, we are to have that love that characterizes the love that God has for us. But that's only one side of the coin. That's the positive side, if you will. There's another side. Paul gives it to us here. In other words, as Christians, we cannot hope to be loving or hope to be loving as love like characterizes that which God loves us. We can't hope to be that kind of loving. We cannot hope to be loving without hypocrisy if we are not also, notice, abhorring what is evil, cling to what is good. This is the second principle. First principle is have a love without hypocrisy. The second principle that overarches all the things that are going to follow after this, love and hate. Love God without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil. Now it isn't simply enough for us to just go, okay, yeah, I get it. That's an easy principle, so let's move on because I fully understand what that means. Do you? Because far too many Christians do that with the Bible. Far too many commentators, far too many people you see who have supposedly studied the text and they come to a text like this. I've seen it in the commentaries. They come to a text like this and say, well, that's an easy principle. We'll just move on. Everybody understands that. Well, no, they don't. I disagree with that. And I believe that that is why there's so much shallow teaching. Why there's so much shallow understanding about biblical truth. Why? Because far too many Christians move past profound statements like this without ever pondering the implications of that truth. Without ever thinking about, hey, what does that mean in my life? Let's listen to what it says. Abhor what is evil. Abhor what is evil. Just that statement alone causes us at least to ask at least two questions, if not four from this entire statement. One is this, what does abhor mean by its intent? Secondly, what is evil? And then third and fourthly, by Just the second part of that phrase, what does cling and good mean? I cannot just assume that I know. Why? Because an unhypocritical love in my actions hangs in the balance. And not only that, it also implies that my testimony to others hangs in the balance because I'm to love without hypocrisy, and that affects my testimony, which is a gospel presentation. And so, therefore, the reflection of my love for God hangs in the balance. 
In other words, if I'm commanded, and by the way, that's what this is, right? We mentioned that last time. These are commands. These aren't suggestions. These are imperatives. If I'm commanded to love God, and to love God is to love His commandments and to do them, So I'm to obey this, I'm to put this into action, then I better understand what it's intending to do, shouldn't I? If this is a command, if I'm to do it, and, and all of that hangs in the balance, then I should understand exactly what Paul is saying. I can't just easily go, oh yeah, poor what of evil, okay. Because assuredly, I'm going to fall short. So what does abhor mean? Well, the original language here includes on that word a prefix to the original word, which in this case simply intensifies the intent of the root meaning, which is the word hate, the word for hate. The prefix means to separate from. That's, that's the, if you separated the prefix from the word, that's what it would mean in the original language. Separate yourself from or separate from that. Appa is the word. But put in front of this root word, it isn't telling us to stay away from hate. Uh, that would be somewhat humanly logic if you were thinking that way, but grammatically that can't mean that way. It isn't telling us to stay away from hate. In fact, it's telling us in an intensive kind of way to intensely hate the object that it's talking about. And the object that it's talking about is each and everything that is evil. Intensely hate evil or ensure that you stay away from evil or stay away from evil with a hatred. That's what he's saying. So, if I'm being commanded to intensely hate evil, then I better understand at least one thing. I better understand that evil is not some abstract concept. It's not an abstract concept. Some will define evil this way. They will say that evil is only the absence of good. In other words, you want to define evil? Evil is the absence of good. That's what they will say. And there's truth to that. But that can't be fully only what it is, because the absence of good still doesn't leave me in an abstract position. It actually leaves me with something. If I have good, and it's the absence of good, I have something. It isn't just an abstract concept. In other words, it's not just... A thought, there's something there. So it is true that evil is the absence of good, but it isn't simply the absence of good. Evil also hates what is good and actively is militant against what is good. And so we experientially know that. We know that because every day in our world we are getting more and more of a look at the meaning of evil. The godless world is more and more distancing itself from that which is good. And not just simply distancing itself from that which is good, but it's militantly hateful and fighting against that which is good. In other words, the godless world and all that it deems of value is part of evil. 
And so what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that we are to intensely hate that evil. In other words, have a positive hate for it. Have a positive hatred for it. That means that we cannot simply think that if we do not participate in evil, that we are doing what is right before God. Let me say that again. We cannot simply think that simply because we don't participate in some act of evil, that we are doing right before God. Or, let me say it in the way of Paul, we cannot think that because we simply do not do some evil thing that we are loving God without hypocrisy. No. God says through Paul we must actively hate evil. You say, why do you say it that way? Because it's very possible for a person, it's very possible for someone to be a person who avoids doing evil. There's a lot of people in the world, you go to talk to somebody, hey, you need to know Jesus Christ. Well, I'm a good person. And they start listing the things that they do not do. I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, and don't do this. And we would certainly say all those things that maybe they list are evil things. Wickedness. It's very possible for someone to live by avoiding the evil things, and yet all the while, in their heart and in their mind, they secretly find pleasure in it. No, they don't do it. They don't hate it. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul says back in Romans 1, isn't it? Remember what he said? They are, they know the ordinance of God, chapter 1, verse 32, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, so here's people who are practicing it, but they also give hearty approval of those who practice it. You may not do it, but are you hating it? You see, if that's us, then we're not abhorring evil. At least not by the definition that God gives in Scripture. Here's how one pastor said it, quote, It's not nearly that we keep on the right side of the law, not doing the wrong thing, but rather that we find disobedience to it revolting. It's not that we simply just keep on the right side of the law and and do it, but that we find disobedience to it revolting. He's right. Evil for the Christian is to be unthinkable. Not just in action, but in the mind, in the imagination. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3, Paul exhorted the Ephesian believers, but do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So for the Christian, evil isn't just something to not be done. Evil is to be unthinkable. Now, I think we get a picture of this a little bit in Matthew chapter 7. Turn over for a moment to Matthew chapter 7. We know the passage well. Jesus is giving his final words to the Sermon on the Mount. And 
And he's told them all kinds of principles concerning Christian living. He brought it up back in chapter 5 with the Beatitudes. Here's the attitude of a Christian. Here's the thought and thinking process of you as a Christian. He walks through all kinds of things. He talks about worry and all kinds of different things and judging others and this kind of thing. And around verse 17 of chapter 7, you notice that the truth of good and evil are being contrasted. He begins, really, in, or at least your Bible probably begins with a little break between 12 and 13. So I'll start reading at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. So beware of the false prophets. Those who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now there is a hypocritical love. There is the picture that says, I love you, but yet it's hypocrisy. It's a mask. It's a game. It's a facade. It's a, it's a costume. You will know them, how? By their fruit. Well, grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? That's a agricultural reality. You're not going to get one fruit off a certain kind of tree or a bush. It doesn't happen. They don't grow that way. The bush produces what it is. That's the principle. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. That which is by quality good produces good fruit. That which is by quality bad produces bad fruit. Even so, what he says. So a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. What he means is, it isn't that a Christian can't do wrong things. What he's saying is that which is by quality good produces good so if it's what is by quality good, you're not going to get bad from it. Nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Obviously, he's in the context here of false prophets. So you see the contrast going on. You see the reflection of what is on the inside. The outside reflects the inside. So there, we, we are to hate evil as a principle but also as a practice. That's the idea. We're not only to hate evil in an outward kind of way, we're to hate it with this visceral reality on the inside. What is by quality good? We're to love. We're to hate evil. So how do you and I become capable of responding in this way to all evil? We'll go back to Romans chapter 12. Like we said last Lord's Day, the Christian is always processing, right? We're always to be processing. This is what Paul tells us in verse 2. Don't be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Always be processing. Always have the truth going through you, processing the truth, processing the situation that you're in, processing the words that are being said, processing in thought, what is happening. 
We ought to be processing. We can't ever turn off and disengage our mind. We have to always be thinking. That's simply what I'm saying. That's what Paul is saying. We have, to, we have to be thinking. This is how we do it. We have to always have our minds being renewed by Scripture. Why? Because we're never going to be able to abhor evil as we are called and equipped to abhor evil unless we understand doctrine. Don't make an enemy of that word. Don't make an enemy of the word doctrine. Love it. Just simply means teaching, truth, the scriptures, doctrine. So we must start where Paul started us. Right? We have to start with that consideration. Consider who you are and what you are. Consider that you were nothing, that you were lost, that you were bound on a road going to nowhere, and your salvation was all and only up to you. And that ends in one place, in one place only. That road ends only in hell. Consider all of that. Consider what God has rescued you from, that He has transferred you from the domain of that place into the domain of His dear Son, according to His mercy, by His grace. Begin to present yourself to Him, renewed with that understanding in your mind. And look at the situation that you're in. And look at what's being said. And look who's doing what according to that reality. You see, as a person, you may recognize that some things are bad. That God has given us this innate reality because of His being part of His creation to know good and bad. Romans chapter 1 clearly says that. We suppress that truth in our own unrighteousness. You may be a person who recognizes that some things are bad. And you might even dislike those things. In fact, you might even be a person that takes some personal action against those kinds of things. But if you're not a Christian and you're doing that, you're just a moralist. You're just a moralist. You're a person who lives according to some set of rules that you have determined to be the determined right way, and you consider yourself to be right with God even though you're still on a road to hell. You're a moralist. Because there is only one thing that will make you have an utter repulsive hatred for any evil. What is that? That you have been given and are equipped to have a positive love for God. Let me say it this way. The only way to define that which is evil, the only way for you and I to really define that which is evil is to look at the way which is only good. And what, what is that? That is only God, His character and His action. That's only where, that He is only good. If you want to know what is evil, then look at the holiness of God. Because evil is the very opposite of that in every way, in action and in thought. 
This is how the Bible teaches us. I read it this morning, Psalm 97. The psalmist commands that we are to hate evil and to love good. That's a command. Just like Paul is saying here, we are to love and love good and we are to hate evil. You read Psalm 104. Psalm 104 goes through this litany at the beginning of all of these verses about the creation of God and all that God has done and the goodness of God and all the majesty in which God has gone through to create, His creative power, the goodness of God in creation. And then in light of that, in light of all the reflective goodness of God through His creation, the psalmist prays that evil will be removed. In other words, the psalmist looks at God and sees what is absolute good and says, in light of that, anything that's not that, get it out of here. Remove it. I want nothing to do with it. Why does he do that? Because that's the only response to pondering the wonder and majesty of God. That's the only response. Love that which is good. In fact, go back with me to Psalm 34 for a moment. I just want to show you this a few times in the Psalms, this whole idea where hating evil is so prevalent. Psalm 34, beginning of verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. O fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him there is no want. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. So come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Well, here it is. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Why? Because the the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears hear their cries, but the face of the Lord is against the evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Wow. There's a stark contrast. Turn over to Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. Here's someone who loves their sin, and the discovery of it just seems to bring more gleeful joy to them. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. That's the characteristic of the wicked. That's the characteristic of the ungodly. That's the characteristic of those who see no worth, no reality in who God is. Turn over to Psalm 101. Psalm 101. The psalmist says, I will sing of loving kindness and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing praises. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? 
I'll walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. Do you see the heart attitude? Do you see the one who has a love for God with, without hypocrisy? You get to know God, you love truth. You get to know God, you see what is wicked because you compare it to the majesty of God and you immediately know. Proverbs even gets seemingly clearer, if you will, if we could be more clear than it already is. Proverbs 8. Of course, the book of wisdom does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice, beginning in verse 1. On top of the heights, beside the way, where the paths meet, she takes her stand beside the gates at the opening of the city, at the entrance of the door, she cries out, To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O naive ones, discern prudence, and O fools, discern wisdom. Listen, for I'm going to speak noble things, and the opening of my lips will produce right things. For my mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing crooked or perverted in them. They are all straightforward to him who understands, and right to those who find knowledge." So take my instruction and not silver, and my knowledge rather than choicest gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. For I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. Okay, we know that's pretty clear. I'm only going to say what is true. I'm only going to say what is right. I'm only going to lead you in the right direction. I'm only going to tell you exactly what you need. There will be no lies, no abomination, no evil from me whatsoever. Okay, what is it? How do I discern? What should I do? Fear the Lord. To fear Him is to hate evil. Can't get any clearer than that. You want to know what evil is? Fear God. Know Him that you might fear Him. Pride, arrogance, and the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. That's pretty clear. It's pretty clear. This is what Israel had a problem with. This is why the prophets continued to be sent by God to them so that they would hate the evil way. They would hate the abomination that was an abomination before God. This is what Amos said. Amos chapter 5 verse 15. Have truth in the gate. Have justice and righteousness at the gate. Hate evil. In fact, in the New Testament, we see this as the personification of Jesus Christ himself. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, to which of the angels did he ever say, talking about God to his son, thou art my son today, I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. 
And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, or of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and righteous, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is the very character of the God we say we love, the God we who has saved us. This is his very character. You have loved righteousness, hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, hath anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companion. This is the very character of Jesus Christ himself. The character of a love for God above all things and a hatred of evil, regardless of how it looked or in what way it came. And so when we go to chapter 12 of Romans and Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil. This is what Paul is saying to all of us. We are to hate evil, not because there are dire consequences for us if we engage in some kind of evil practice. That would be just being moralists. No, we are to hate evil because we see it as the opposite of God. It is the opposite of who God is and His purposes. And so we should hate it when we see it in ourselves, when we see it in our attitudes, when we see it in our actions, when we see it in our words, when we see it in our thoughts. We should hate it like that. Not because, hey, there's consequences I might suffer if that comes out. No, but because it's the very opposite of the character of God. Those who love God must hate evil. And the more that we know God, the more we love God, and the greater will be our hatred of evil. So, beloved, if you find that you cozy up far too close to things that are evil, and I'm sure as you're sitting here this morning, you're thinking about your own life, and you're thinking about the reality of who God is and the reality of where your heart goes sometimes, you are sickened by that. And if you find yourself all far too comfortable in that cozy blanket, then you don't need to try harder at staying away from evil. You don't need to try harder to do that. What you need to do is just get to know God who has saved you. You get to know Him more. And the more you get to know Him, the more you will hate what is evil. And the more you hate what is evil, you won't have to strive to stay away from it because you'll want to be with your Savior more. That's why the opposite command of abhorring evil is cling to what is good. That's why Paul says that here. Cling to what is good. I love the word cling. I'm I'm a hobbyist woodworker sometimes. This last year I was able to put a... Years ago, I had a, a shop in my garage. This last year, I was able to put a shop in my backyard. Small little footprint. And sometimes I get in there and make sawdust. But as a hobby woodworker, this word has meaning. Because it, it, it's the idea of taking two pieces of lumber and sticking them together with glue. I, have, I found this new glue. Some of you might know about it. It's called CA glue. It's a very very chemically potent glue. 
It's like super glue on steroids. Literally. It has an activator. You put glue down. You put the thing together. You spray the activator on it, and instantaneously it dries. I've come close to having my fingers like this before. (laughs) So what is Paul saying here? He's saying that we Christians are to stick ourselves... We are to cement ourselves to that which is good. Fasten yourself so tightly to the good that you can't be removed from it. That's the idea. Fasten yourself so tightly to that which is good and what is by quality good that no one could rip you away from it. And so you say, so what is good? Well, we could say it this way. Anything that is good in the sight of God. Anything that's good in the sight of God. It's that simple, really. Anything that's good in the sight of God. If God would approve, then cling there. You can't just say, well, I think God would approve of this. How do you know God would approve of that without knowing God? Without knowing what God said. You better know what God said, or you better not cling there. If God would have that attitude, cling to that attitude. If God would say those words, cling to those words. If God would live that way, then you go ahead and live that way. In other words, our definition of good is to be God Himself. This is what Jesus said to the Pharisee who came to Him. Good teacher. Jesus said, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Jesus wasn't saying, I'm not God. He was saying, do you recognize me for who I am? Because only God is really good. What is by quality good, in essence, in every way good. Is that what you're saying to me? Is that the kind of conversation we're having here? See, that should be our definition of good. God, only God is good. Only God is what is by quality good, in essence, in everything. What he does and what he says and who he is. That's what we are to cling to. Love without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. So here are the two principles that are to to rule all of our conduct. We are being commanded and called to be passionate about practical holiness in our lives. That's really what it's calling us to. Be passionate about practical holiness. And that practical holiness is built upon the foundation of the understanding of the grace and mercy of God, which He has already showered upon us in Christ. And so we show our gratitude. This is the Christian life, a life of just Gratitude to Him, doing everything we can to live that self-offering life. Offering ourselves to Him, presenting our bodies a living, holy sacrifice. By the way, this is why the Bible tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is why the Bible says that. Don't get confused by that. That doesn't mean that you can somehow earn your salvation. 
When Paul said that, he's simply telling us that practical holiness, holy living, living out as God would have us live as his children, as we are equipped to live, is not something that just happens to us as Christians. In other words, we just don't get to say, I believe in Jesus, lay down on our pillow at night, put our Bible under our pillow, and by osmosis, somehow we let go and let God, and he fixes us, every little area. That's not the Christian life. That doesn't make us holy in practice. What makes us holy in practice is following the commands of God. Walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The calling that God has equipped us in, that we can follow because He saved us and He's indwelt us with the Holy Spirit. We can love without hypocrisy. This isn't, the bar isn't too high here. We can hate evil. We can cling to what is good. It, it isn't a, a, a something we cannot do. A standard so high that how could God ever ask us to do this? There's no way we can do this. There is, you can do this. Maybe not perfectly. That's not what God's commanding you. He's commanding you simply to obey. Just obey. Just love Him. Love Him with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole strength. And your neighbor is yourself. This is why it's our direction, not our perfection. We're going to be perfect one day. That's going to come. When the mortal is swallowed up by the immortal. Praise God. As we heard in Sunday school this morning, we will be changed by the exertion of his power to conform all things unto him. To bring all things in subjection to him. And so I, I just echo the words of the Apostle Paul this morning. By the mercies of God, present yourself a living sacrifice to God. Think deeply about this truth. Think deeply about this doctrine. Understand it. Think about it. Think about its implications for your life. Think about where it's affecting, what areas it's going into, what it's challenging you with in terms of your love for God and then your love for your human those around you. Think about that. By the power of His Spirit, submit to Him. And when you do that, your heart's going to be filled with a love for God. And by His Spirit, you will desire to keep His commandments above anything else. You will. You'll begin to hate evil and cling. You'll be able to You'll be sticking like unbreakable glue to what is good and well-pleasing in God's sight. This is why Paul's going to move us on in verse 10 and following with the words, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. I think it'll shock us a little bit as to what the implication is for that in the church. I think we we have an understanding in some kind of way, but I want to fill that out, flush it out, fill up what Paul is saying there so that we fully can understand how close we are to one another. How close we are. Let's pray together. 
Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the insightful words that you have here from the Apostle Paul, the challenge that it is to our hearts. Lord, we know that you're a gracious God, that you always care for us in the best way, and that your challenge to us is to live for you in every way that we can, according to your mercy and grace, which you've showered upon us in Christ. Lord, help us never forget that. For when we exalt ourselves, when we exercise our own wills, when we are eclipsing others for the sake of our own desires, it's because we've forgotten who we are. For everything we've received has been a gift from you. And so let us just rest with that. Love you without hypocrisy. Abhor, hate even the concept of evil in any kind of way and cling to that which is good. Help us to know you in your holiness, Lord. Give us that desire and unction so that you would be honored through us, we pray, as people and as a church, because of our Savior Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.